0: Welcome to the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. This is Dr. Jay Calvert. Today, I'm in the studio once again, back from Paris, with my very uh, parised out co host, Dr. Millicent Ravello. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing excellent. How are you?
0: I'm great. I'm, I, I guess we're not really parised out, are we're, we?
1: I mean, no. For, for me, that would be very hard to do. I know. To it have was great. too much Paris. <laughs> but we are out of Paris. It's true. Sadly. But we're back. We're back in Beverly Hills. I mean, there are worse places we could have landed. That's true. So,
0: it was a a great meeting. Uh, Very happy that uh, we made it back safely. We're back in the saddle, doing surgery, busy as could be. And I want to talk to you about the big panel that you did because there were a couple things that came to light at this uh, at this meeting. One, the rhinoplasty sections are just really, really niche sections. There there just aren't many people that are really that interested in rhinoplasty.
1: It's a very small community. So even at the the most attended surgery, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, rhinoplasty surgery meetings, it's a small group of surgeons that do what you do.
0: It's just like, it's like an orphan specialty. <laughs> I'm just over there like fixing my noses and doing my thing. And everyone's like... <laughs> Good for you, man. Yeah. Keep going. You're the man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was like, really, when we started off that first session, there were literally like six people in the audience and there were six panelists. That's a total of 12 people. <laughs> I, I mean, really. And then yeah. there was probably four staff members. So, you know, it just, and the room was set to hold, you know, 200 people. No dice. No. Didn't but, need to 200 seats.
1: Nope. But the uh, the breast panels. Big news. Yeah. There was a lot more people in those. Sorry.
0: Yeah. So that's what I want to talk about. Like, I don't think people know what it is that you do because there was sort of like, you know, I'm I'm talking to, you know, these, these big people from ASAPs and the big people from MCAS and they're like, you know, Dr. Ravello, like she's really got her, like her stuff down. I was like, you know, it's really only the surprise in your voice that hurts. (laughs) Like, uh, duh. Like, who are you talking about? Yeah. She's got her stuff down. I don't think they realize kind of what an expert you are.
1: Well, you know, I just, I, I'm in my little corner. I'm doing my I little, know. I want to say my little surgeries. I'm doing my big ass surgeries <laughs> and I just, you know, I don't make a lot of noise other than the fact that I have a podcast and two billboards. <laughs> <laughs> other than that, I'm pretty low key. <laughs> pretty low key,
0: but it's true. I mean, I, I don't think that the, uh, you know, the, the leadership of the, I, I know that MCAS is starting to get the point cause they put you on a few big, big, uh, talks and you did really well, um, but I, I really feel like, I think that there's got to be a little bit of summary of what it is that you do. And I think people need to understand that doing these complex breast reconstructions and complex body cases are, are not easy. This isn't like the, the plastic surgery 101 type stuff that you do right when you finish a residency. I mean, you've so, gained significant expertise with very complex stuff from doing a lot of it.
1: Right, and that's that's mostly what it is. Um, I was fortunate enough that when I did come out of residency and training, I was put in a position where I could do a lot of these really complex body cases. Certainly not for like the faint of heart or you know the shy. And you just do them. I mean, they're handed to you. You do them. You know, the patients come to you. They have these needs, and so you do the cases. And I've gotten to really like and excel in the complex breast the complex breast reconstructions the revisions the secondary cases and then also these big body cases as well
0: but why are you good at it this is the this is the <laughs> analysis point here because i know i know what it is see like you have to realize like when i saw you start operating as a resident i said ah, uh, this one is different. You know, I said, the surgery is strong with this one. You know, there was, like, this real talent, which you brought from uh, from LSU. LSU General with, Surgery. Right, so, like, and for anybody who doesn't know, like, I trained at Pittsburgh, where a lot of the, the guys and gals that came from LSU landed in Pittsburgh with me. Guys like Lloyd Champagne and Joe Zaldos and uh, Ken Odenay, good Cajun guy from, from mm-hmm. Louisiana. And these guys were... They they operated circles around the other around the other residents. They really did. And that's the the nature of LSU. And so when I saw you operating, I felt the same way. And so why is it that you were able to create these systems to do these complex cases? How did that happen?
1: Well, if you were to ask me and and you are, my initial gut answer and perhaps it's little self-deprecating is that I'm just I'm stubborn. Um, I enjoy a challenge, and I'm not going to back down from giving it my best. And so yes, I do tend to take a long time in the Or and that's one of what I'm known for because I refuse to stop or not do enough to get the per- to get the patient and the results to be as perfect as i possibly can and i just i'm too stubborn to back down and say oh no it's too hard or oh no i can't do this it's like okay i'm kind of like like that snail that gets to the end of the race eventually like just give me time i'm going to get there i'm going to get there i'm going to do it i can do it i can do it and and then it gets done <laughs> so i just i refuse to 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 back down in the face of complex or difficult because I know how I can get there. And it's just a matter of putting your nose to the grindstone and and doing the work to get that result.
0: And I think there's something to be said for reps, for experience. And you've done done a ton of reps. yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely now at the place where I can see a patient, know what they need, know what needs to happen in surgery, know what tweaks need to be made in the technique to get the best possible result.
0: So for our patients that are out there, like there, there are all these people that listen to this podcast as we, and, and we got hit pretty hard when we were in Paris with lots of people saying like, Oh, I love your podcast. Listen to this. I listen to that. This episode was great. What is it when you're, when you're sitting there and you're, let's say as a patient, you're looking for a surgeon and this, this, uh, this happens all the time when I say, well, I don't live in Beverly Hills. I'm not coming there. How do I pick that surgeon? How does somebody who needs, you know, breast reconstruction, do they just look, go with what's on their, do, do they look on their insurance panel and say, oh, this is person in my, on my insurance panel. And then, and then do they, or do they say, I, I need the best person? How do you identify the person who's really good at the things that you do?
1: I think it involves a little bit of legwork and grunt work on the part of the patient, but in the right channels. Um, so if you're going through insurance or for an insurance-based case, um, like the patient I had today, my, his insurance company gave him 22 pages of doctors. He went through every single one. He found me on like page seven, and when he finally looked at looked me up, he was like, "Oh, that's that's who I want." So he fastidiously went through every single person on that list until he found one that he liked. You know, looked at the befores and afters, the website, the social media, the podcast. So if you're given a broad list of options within, say, your network, spend the time going through them and doing exactly that. Most importantly, as we say all the time, look at the befores and afters because that's probably very similar to what you are going to get. So you have to like the final result because you're probably going to get something similar. And then once you've narrowed it down to, you know, two or three, and then you go and you meet with them in person and you will know pretty soon whether or not that's your surgeon. Like it's, it's, it's that if you're at all listening to your gut instinct, you will know what the right surgeon is for you. Because sometimes you will meet with a surgeon and just walk out that door going, nope, not a, letting that person touch me. Right. Or you'll walk out of them and be like, yes, that's my person. So you really have to connect on sort of an emotional level with your surgeon and and be okay trusting them and putting your faith in them to do your surgery. So you got to do that preliminary work and kind of find a list however you can, whether you go on Google and look for Beverly Hills plastic surgeon or wherever you are, Indianapolis plastic surgeon, find a prospective list and then start going through it systematically looking at things like before and afters website's social media presence um and then and then going in person and and seeing who you like
0: yeah i mean it, it's all that the before and afters i mean come on the it, it is the gallery you got to look at those those results that's where the action is that's where you find out what your results are going to look like and you can you know it, i think it's hard for patients and the public to look at before and afters
1: i was just going to say that it's really hard because there's so hey, there's so many reasons that before the photos even get to the prospective patient, sometimes, you know, they've been altered or they're taken at an angle or at a lighting in a way that's, that's not really representative of what the true result is. So you, you kinda gotta make sure you're looking at standardized photos and that the after photos are not all photos that were sent in by patients in bikinis that they've filtered themselves that's nice. That's a pretty picture, but it may or may not be entirely representative of what the actual medical photograph result is for the after photo. So be critical in that sense. Like, am I looking at a filtered, pretty, angled, just right, pretty outfit after? Or am I looking at, like, standardized photos side by side before and after? So that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing is just making sure that you're really looking at it from an actual result standpoint and not necessarily the flash of the office and the lifestyle and all the other things that are great and fun to look at on Instagram, but really have no bearing on the actual surgical result that you're going to get from that surgeon.
0: Yeah, I really think the websites are key. I, I I know, do. I'm i old
1: school. I'm like circa yep. 2008 right here, <laughs> like, <laughs> go to the website and that's where you're really going to get all the... standardized information that you need.
0: Yeah. I mean, I want to, I, I almost sent out this before and after that I came across on social media because it, it repulsed me and and (laughs) angered me so much that I was going to send it to everybody kind of in our friend group, but uh, I didn't. Uh, But what it was, was the before was a patient who was frowning, wearing glasses, no makeup, uh, hair not done, looked like they just and came in out of the rain and let it dry. And then the after was glasses off, full makeup, (laughs) smiling, uh, filter, and the comment from the surgeon was, oh my God, what an incredible transformation. And I only felt like it would have been better if they'd said, and you don't even need surgery to get this result because you don't.
1: <laughs> it's like an old school rom-com makeover where you like take the glasses off the nerdy girl and give her a dress and some makeup. <laughs> She's popular.
0: And this guy charges over $150,000 for facelifts. And it was repulsive to me. It made me just like smoke came out of my ears because I was like, how can, how can you stand yourself to do that. Like, how can you even possibly put that up there and consider yourself anything but a fraud? I mean, seriously, it's so, it's so like insulting to the public to do that, which is why I think you should go to the websites and look for a photograph on a medical background, whether it's black or blue or gray or whatever. I don't care, but The lighting and the backgrounds should be similar.
1: They should be similar. Medical grade photographs, standardized angles. It's not hard to do. Yeah. That's that's what, I mean, if you're going to go classic, old school, traditional plastic surgery, that's what that is. The newer stuff on social media with, you know, the smiling, you know, happy patients is great for social media. It adds to a nice, pretty page. It gives personality to the page, um, but it's not necessarily a great representation of the before no. and after.
0: It, it, it is for, for entertainment purposes only, yet I think patients look at social media as the gold standard at this point.
1: Yeah, that is probably very true.
0: This week, in fact, I am on my social media trying to post before and afters that are medical grade. That are, you know, here's the blue background. Here's the blue background. Here's the the same positioning. Here's the same positioning. Trying to really get it right, and and it is hard. I am gonna admit that, like, even getting the lighting right is hard in an office. All that stuff is hard. But full makeup and a filter with a smile, and you know, versus glasses. No, I, I mean that kind of thing is to me it's completely wrong. And, and patients don't know, they don't know, they can't tell. So that's why, you know, talking about this is really important because I don't think, you know, you're, you're just not, and, and of course, you know, this is a a surgeon whose board could give a crap, you know, they're, it's not the American board of plastic surgery, because if we did that, you'd get, you know, 17 letters from the higher ups in, plastic surgery saying like, I saw your before and afters, you're being reprimanded. We need to talk about this. The ethics committee already has this under, you know, that's how that goes. You know, and these other boards where they're, they're not really interested in, in ethical considerations, they don't care. So these other specialties are free to advertise however they like. And, and that's the truth because nobody's going to reprimand them. Nobody cares. It, it makes it very hard for patients. And I think it's unfair. Back to your before and afters. That's my little uh, sidebar, and I'll get off the soapbox now. Um, I want to talk about your before and afters, because yours are very standardized. They're very clear, and that's where I think, you know, especially the things that you do that I see, and, and you can you can comment otherwise, but I see you doing breast reductions in a very aesthetic and, you know, incredibly beautiful way that includes liposuction of the batwing armpits, <laughs> which, you know, needs to be done. Sometimes with with extended excisions, oh, ex- yes. extended reductions, I see you doing massive body lifts of of epic levels. Everything from, you know, circumferentials with thighs and upper, you know, torso lifts, including the breasts and the arms and all that, to really doing, you know, uh, even your your facial aesthetic work that you're doing for not only just you know people that have you know aging face, but you're doing transgender work, and so. I I just, I I felt like we kind of had to talk about it a little bit because I I was sort of shocked when, you know, I was talking to these uh, people in the leadership positions that they just had no clue that you were like over here just kicking ass and taking names.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 might, you know why? Because I'm operating. Like, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. A, I, that's why I suck at social. Well, there's many reasons I suck at social media, but one of them is that like I spend most of my days in the OR, and when I get home, I'm really tired. So that's you know, I, I'm just here operating, and um, what I'm doing on any given day, like you referenced, breast reductions, I do a fair amount of those. Um, I really like to make. Pretty breasts, and that you know ranges the gamut depending on what the patient tells me that they want. Um, but at the end of the day, I want these breasts to be really pretty. I want them to be beautiful. I want them to be sexy. I want the patients to feel comfortable with these breasts. And if that's a patient who says they want really large breasts and you know 600 cc implants and up to their neck. We can work on that. We can do that. If they just want, hey, I want this to look natural, but maybe a little bit of fullness, not entirely like a natural breast, we can do that too. So I really try and take the patient's input into what they bre- they want their breast to look like and then just knock it out of the park with a really beautiful breast for them, whether that's a reduction, a lift, fat grafting, augmentation, whatever it is that they would need. Um, and then for the body stuff, like you referenced, there's a large amount of body contouring Um, and it's a lot of liposuction. Usually there's a lot of skin removal, but the goal is still the same to create a really pretty, beautiful female figure that has, you know, everything that the patients are wanting, you know, a a contoured waist that flows smoothly into the hips, a nice, beautiful hourglass figure. That's usually what I'm trying to create with all of the body contouring and abdominal procedures that I do.
0: And you're damn good. Um, Breast augmentation, are you under the muscle, over the muscle kind of gal?
1: I'm typically under the muscle uh, with a few exceptions. So my transgender patients and my uh, tuberous breast patients are usually over the muscle. Um, in the workout patients or super fit girls, I'm usually subfascial or over the muscle in those patients as well.
0: And what do you have to say about saline versus silicone implants? Do you put any salines in or only if somebody has a gun to your head?
1: Only if they have a gun to my head. Like if they actually come in asking. If I have patients that already have saline implants, I usually suggest silicone to them. And if they have big objections to it, then I respect that and I'll put in the saline. But usually they're like, oh, I was just told that silicone weren't good for me. So that's why I went with saline. And then when I ex- you explain the whole logic behind why silicone implants aren't bad for you, they don't leak like they used to, they're usually quite amenable to the silicone change.
0: Change implants every 10 years or not every 10
1: years? Not every 10 years. Um, unless they are really old implants, um, especially made before maybe 2012-ish, they may not last much longer past 10 years. Anything I would say made after 2014-ish Probably has a fairly good lifespan and you can extend that 10-year recommendation out a little bit longer. Anything placed within the last few years has a 20-year warranty against rupture, so you got plenty of time on those. Usually, I tell people, you're going to have these implants exchanged before you hit that mark for cosmetic reasons. Time, age, gravity, pregnancy, aging, you're going to want these swapped out for cosmetic reasons, not because the implant itself has failed.
0: Last one. Periareolar mastopexy or anchor scar, wise pattern mastopexy? Anchor
1: scar. <laughs> <laughs> so the periareolar, that's a scar that just goes around the areola. It's used to do a lift, to lift the areola up over the implant. Kind of. Kind of. Or you do the, the anchor, which is around the areola, down the center and underneath. And usually my patients end up with some version of a mini anchor to a full Anchor. If we're talking about a mastopexy or mastopexy augmentation, um, I will do periareolar in a few, like very, very rare conditions when they need it, but they don't need the full vertical. And usually, it's in my tuberous breasts. My tuberous breasts usually need a bit of a lift, but they don't need any skin removed from the bottom because that's actually where they're deficient in it. So I do a periareolar, but I have a very specific and special technique I use for the periareolers to really minimize the widening and scarring that you typically see with a periareolar scar. Everyone's like, oh, the scar's is hitting because it's in the areola. You'll never see it. False. Those scars widen and they scar and they can look so bad. Ugh. So I have a, a little technique that I've developed that I do to really minimize that widening.
0: Very cool. Well, I just thought we should kind of do a little roundup after after our little trip there just because I, I didn't, you know, I think everybody knows what I do. I think that's been pretty well established. I do noses, faces, and breasts are kind of my thing. But, you know, I was, I was I, I was very, very happy that you got on those big panels, but I also think that there needs to be a little more of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there are, you know, there's some experts in, around Beverly Hills. And I think that, uh, getting you on the docket at these meetings is important because you have tremendous experience and, and it does, it, it helps the, the surgeons who are dealing with the stuff that you're dealing with. And there aren't too many people that are up there talking about it.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm here. Get, throw me your hardest breast case. I'll take it. <laughs> Wait. Well, nope. That's not hard enough. Give me another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well,
0: and you do. You do great with them. So, anyway, just wanted to to round that out from our meeting and uh, and let everybody know that uh, you're available for panels. As about <laughs> to available for parties. And come to your you know to your kid's birthday party. But uh, no, I mean, for the panels, it's really important because that's where you get to discuss that. And for our listeners who, you know, don't go to medical meetings, when we're at these meetings, it, it is a, you know, it, it's it's a lot of information flowing back and forth. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, you know, a lot it's of really good.
1: Really good stuff. I mean, that's where you really share your techniques with your colleagues and you learn and grow as a surgeon even if you were the one speaking, there's like always something you can learn from being around your yeah. colleagues, doing similar things or having similar problems.
0: Yeah. It's a big deal. And, and uh, and these are, you know, with 17 or 18,000 participants at this meeting, it was, it was high impact and, and there was a lot of discussion. So, um, not so much in the rhinoplasty <laughs> sessions cause there were all 12 of us really enjoyed each other's company. Yeah, mm. I know
1: all of you little masochists <laughs> hanging out together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know it was, uh, I think it was, uh. Uh, It was Mike Nyack that was like, yeah, yeah, man. Those cases you do, like, you're crazy. (laughs) Those those are impossible. (laughs) Like, what are you thinking? I was like, "Yeah, hey, it's the real deal. Got to do them. Anyway, this is the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast coming to you from the 90210. If you like what you heard on the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast and want to get in touch with either Dr. Ravello or myself,